2020, pretty early in the pandemic, a man from Taiwan got married. And according to the labor and leave rules of Taiwan, that entitled him to eight days of paid leave. Well, this intrigued the young married couple, and they decided that if it would be eight days off for their wedding, that they should get divorced and remarried again. And after, get this, three divorces and four weddings over the span of a month, they had accumulated 32 days of paid leave. The man worked at a bank, and as soon as the bank realized the scheme that was going on, they decided to only pay him for eight days, but the man decided to take them to court. And a court, he, he had said that he was just following the rules that were written, and he won, and they had to pay him for all 32 days. I, that's so interesting to me that people will do that sort of stuff to get out of work. It actually intrigued me enough that I decided to look up articles on how to avoid doing work at your job. Listen to some of these tips that were given in these articles. The first one was, when you're walking around the office, always walk fast like you're in a hurry. That way people will see you and go, oh, that guy's so busy. Another one was to keep the, the tape in the adding machine running, and when people walk by, just be punching in random calculations. Depending on your job, that would work really well. Another one was to call your own desk phone with your cell phone. <laughs> that way, when people walk by, they'd see you having a very important conversation. Finally, and I thought this one was so clever, I like that I'm teaching you guys how to get out of work, but this is so interesting to me. One of them was to just carry around a stack of papers or binders. That way, when you go and talk to your coworkers, it will look like you're talking about work. They said the papers can be blank. It doesn't really matter. But when people see you, they'll go, they're so busy. They're always working. They can't stop moving around to get the job done. I thought that that was interesting, that people have worked so hard to come up with ideas of how to not work hard. And this morning, as we kind of dig through the text in Acts chapter 14, I wonder, what if we found out that some of us in this room are skipping out on the work of the gospel? But unlike the stories before, ours is unintentional. As the pastors, as we meet and we, we work through the sermon that we're going to preach each week, because we preach the same one here as we do in Lebanon, and Mason, and Middletown, and the Hispanic service, as we were working through this, we began to realize that every week we're inviting you to join in the work of the gospel, and we're not totally sure that we've described what that work is. So it's possible that some of us in this room want and, and are, are faithful and, and are desire to be part of what God is doing, and we don't actually know how. And so this morning, if you'll pay close attention, you will learn not just how to dive in and participate in the work of the gospel, but you'll also learn how to articulate the gospel. We're in Acts chapter 14, starting with verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium 
and have persuaded the crowds. They stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders from them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. God, we love you as we read your word, as we study your word. God, I pray that it would penetrate our hearts this morning. God, that we would not continue to attempt the work of the gospel without knowing what it is. We would, we would not fail to articulate the gospel to our, our loved ones and those that we come in contact with. God, I pray that you would inspire us through your word and through your spirit to faithfully make disciples like you've called us to. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, what we've had to do, because if you're going to go through an entire book of the Bible, especially one as long as the book of Acts, you have to kind of get this 30,000-foot view of it, which means you can't go through every single verse. But I want to summarize quickly what this is. And, and some of you, if you've been here very long at Liberty Heights, you might notice that uh, this outline is very similar to what the outline was a few years ago in a message on missions. It's a different sermon, but a similar outline. And so we want to ask the question, what is the work and what is the message? Those two questions we're going to answer today. The first one is, what is the work? To give a quick update on where we are in this text, because we skipped ahead to almost the end of this chapter, we are looking at these cities all in the region of Galatia. In fact, the churches that are being planted here are the churches that Paul will eventually write the letter to Galatia that we call Galatians. These churches in Asia Minor, and it says that uh, these unbelieving Jewish people decided that their best opportunity was to, to get around the new Gentile believers and try to put doubt in their mind. This is how it says it. it they poisoned, verse 2, they poisoned their minds against the brothers. They wanted to rouse up the crowd and turn them against this new message. But Paul continued to preach, and many were saved, and then we see a crippled man healed, and the crowd is so blown away that they actually start to believe that Paul and Barnabas are Greek gods. Now that would stoke some of our pride if we did something really neat, and everyone around was like, is that you, Zeus? And that's literally what happened. They thought Barnabas was Zeus and Paul was Hermes. But what, what should believers do in that situation? Exactly what we see in this text, which is Paul and Barnabas deflect all of the praise and say, no, no, we're not to be worshipped. And they point people to Jesus. And then they go to the next town about 20 miles away, which is Lystra. And it says that these these Jewish people who had caused all this mayhem for them already in this region of Galatia followed them all 20 miles to, in this case, attempt to kill Paul. And that's how we arrive at this text. It says that they stoned, they drug him out of town, 
They stoned him. They, they picked up heavy rocks. They tried to beat him to death with them or throw them at him and destroy him. And, and it says that he was so beat up that they actually thought he was dead. They actually thought he was dead, and they walked away. But the disciples gathered around him. He got back up, and the very next day, he's traveling again with Barnabas, preaching the gospel. The next verses are what tell us exactly what it looks like to participate in the work of the gospel. And I've heard it said this way, that a table can only stand if it has at least three legs. And so today, I I, I want to begin with the work of the gospel by looking at the three legs legs of gospel work starting with verse 21 when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples is what it says the word that we're using here is when why do we use the word when well there's this term that we've used in church history called soul winning preaching the gospel for the purpose of Winning others to Jesus. Charles Spurgeon used this word all the time, and this is what he said about it. Soul winning is the chief business of the Christian minister. It should be the main pursuit of every believer. He later said, one soul won to Christ is better than a thousand merely moralized and sleeping in their sins. That, to me, is so powerful and humbling as a father, because what we sometimes do is we think that if we bring our children to church, or if we bring our loved ones to church, that maybe they'll be moralized by what's being preached. Maybe they'll hear the message and they'll shift away from living in such a worldly way and we'll, we'll create these little beings who are so loving and so kind. And at the end of the day, what matters so much more than having a kind child is a Christian child. What matters so much more than having a patient child is a saved child. And our goal in everything we do ought to be to not create nice, moral, successful, upstanding citizens, but to fight so much harder that they would know and follow Jesus. First leg is win. The second leg is build. It says this in verse 22. Strengthening the souls of the disciples encouraging them to continue in the faith. This is the task of discipleship. Discipleship is training for godliness in the same way that we train for anything. If you're a coach in here or a parent who's trained your children to play football or basketball, you train them up. It's the same verb here. They're practicing what this looks like. You're training them up, except instead of a sport, it's Godliness, this is what 1 Timothy 4, 7 and 8 says. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, so he's pointing out, it's not bad to train your body. He says godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Now, it's almost a burden to tell people go and make disciples because again while we know that that should involve the gospel in some way while we know that that should involve the church some way we sometimes don't know the process of making disciples and I want to submit to you that you know the process much better than you think you do because it's the same as training anyone in anything I want to go through these five steps of what it looks like to make disciples the first one 
I do, you watch, we talk. I do something, you watch me do something, we talk. The second one, I do, you help, we talk. You see this progression. It's going from onlooker. It's going from observer to participant. So I do, you watch, we talk. I do, you help, we talk. Get this third one. You do, I help, we talk. And then you do, and I watch, and we talk. And then this one's my favorite. You do, someone else watches. That's how we train anyone in anything. That's how we teach a child how to swing a baseball bat. That's how we teach our daughters to dribble. That's that's how we teach people to play video games or read a book. We do, they're watching. And then we do, and they're helping. And then they do, and we're helping. And then... They do, and we're watching, and then they're doing, and someone else is watching. That's how you make disciples. We're called to win others to Christ, and we're called to train them in godliness. See, so often we think that discipleship is a class, don't we? If you just listen to us, you'd be a disciple. And, and what you need to understand is being a disciple means that you're, mo- or making a disciple is you're modeling it for somebody. One of the greatest ways to make a disciple is to take someone to lunch with you and show them how you treat the person who's serving the food. How you share the gospel with with the waiter or waitress. Win others to Christ. Train them in godliness. And then the third leg of the table, connect. And when they had appointed elders for them, this is verse 23, in every church. This text talks about church planting. That's what's going on. That's, this is, again, the, the genesis of the book of Galatia, the letter to Galatia, where we're seeing these people one to Jesus, and Paul and Barnabas are raising up a church. And in that same way, when we make disciples and we train them in godliness, we don't leave it to the church to do it, though the church ought to do it. We're training them in godliness. We're getting them plugged into the local church. The starting point, though, is sharing or proclaiming the gospel. You cannot build someone up in a faith that they don't have. You understand how important that first leg of this table is, this first leg of this stool is You cannot build a disciple when they do not have a relationship with Jesus. You're just building morality around a lost person. They're still sleeping in their sins, as Spurgeon would say it. You cannot shepherd someone through the local church if they're not a sheep. It's evangelism, discipleship, church planting. These are the goals of mission work. And it sounds so simple, it sounds so straightforward that I should be able to just dismiss and we go home and yet the reality is that what missions is has become clouded we've started to believe that missions is the kind service that we do it's digging wells it's buying goats for villages in other countries it's 
ladling the soup out for others. It's collecting coats and gloves. It's passing out water bottles or it's adoption or foster care or it's volunteering at the school or the local shelter. And I, I want to submit that that's not missions. That's an overflow of missions. Those are incredibly good, important things to do that ought to accompany our missional efforts, and yet if it is not sharing the gospel, it is not missions. You see, what begins to happen is this incomplete effort. I've heard it said before, if everything is missions, nothing is missions. If everything we do is missions, nothing is missions, unless it's accompanied with the gospel, which is the only thing that can transform hearts and thus change lives. The gospel is what separates Christian work from humanitarian efforts. It's what separates uh, us from Habitat for Humanity, which is a good thing, but not a God thing necessarily. It really comes down to what we believe the purpose of missions is. Is it to make more comfortable our outer man condition or to change the inner man. See, the gospel is the only thing that can change our inner man. It's the only thing that can change hearts and minds to make us more like Jesus. Apart from the gospel, it's not missions. I began to wrestle with what went wrong. The early church was so driven by the gospel that when they would serve, they did it for the purpose of leading others to Jesus. And yet, over time, it shifted to where all we want to do is the thing minus the Jesus part. What went wrong? Well, in 1943, a psychologist named Abraham Maslow proposed a paper in the Psychological Review Journal called A Theory of Human Motivation. You might know this better as Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. If you went to high school or college, you've probably read about it. Was it a bad thing? No, it wasn't a bad thing. But what began to happen is the church latched on to this. And from the 40s to 50s to now, this understanding has become that people can't hear the gospel if they're hungry. We must meet their physical needs before we can meet their spiritual needs. That was taken as a fact. In fact, when pastors were polled by the Pew Research, one in six, without being prompted, used Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs as their missional strategy. One in six pastors, unprompted, said Maslow's hierarchy of needs is how we function our, our missional strategy. That's how we put it together. That's how we direct our missional efforts. So what happened in the church? Well, in the church, it became we're feeding people and sharing the gospel. We are clothing people and sharing the gospel. We are housing people and sharing the gospel. We're giving and sharing the gospel. And when it's an and, those two things can be separated very easily. It's easy to feed people and share the gospel, and then eventually it's just feeding people. What's the difference between the early New Testament church and what happens so often today? The early church fed people to share the gospel. You see the difference? They clothed people to share the gospel. 
What's the problem with humanitarian aid as gospel? Those are good things. They're not God things. You would be building up a world that the Bible says is passing away. And yet for some who are very involved in humanitarian efforts, which again are not a bad thing, they just don't need to be separate from the gospel. For some, it's easy to defend your position. Matthew chapter 25 is often used for that, starting with verse 35. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least for one of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Here's another text that we can use to defend humanitarian aid as gospel. James chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, and be well fed, but does nothing about their physical need, what good is it? So how do we wrestle with this? Because I believe the Bible says to never separate the two, that gospel is mission, and it cannot be mission apart from the gospel. How do we reconcile these two things? Those two texts seem pretty solid. Do we just throw them out? No, here's how we make sense of it. These two passages are saying that our faith, if it's not accompanied by practical works and serving others, is not saving faith. That's what James builds an entire case for, that faith without works is dead. In other words, it is not real saving faith. It is not our response to the gospel. So, so what are these verses about? They're saying that our saving faith will always demonstrate the gospel to others. We will look around and meet needs and do it with joy. Because the gospel has saved us, we want to get the gospel to others. We will demonstrate the gospel in order to gain an audience to proclaim the gospel. That's what missions is. It's communication or proclamation of the gospel. And good works is the overflow of the gospel. We can't get stuck doing good things instead of God things. So missions is always centered around the gospel. Point two, if that's the work, what is the message? What is the message? Well, in the book, Church in Hard Places, there's a fascinating and Equally heartbreaking quote, this is what it says, in working in contexts of poverty and addiction, I have been on the receiving end of a lot of short-term mission teams. And while I appreciate the help, I have noticed over the years that a lot of well-meaning, Jesus-loving groups from the UK and US will show up with their paintbrushes and hammers with no understanding of the gospel message they think they have come to proclaim. Listen to what he has to do because of this. The problem has become so bad that we now have to teach classes called What is the Gospel and How to Give Your Testimony to Visiting Short-Term Missions Teams. Do you see what the and caused? 
getting so focused on meeting the need, which is a real need, which is a good thing for believers to do, but we do it in response to the gospel and in conjunction with the gospel, not separate from the gospel. To the point that trainers across the country, people who are accepting short-term missions teams are having to train the Christians in how to communicate the gospel. The question that I think this raises that's, that's pretty clear is, if you had to communicate the gospel today, right now, if someone said, tell me what the gospel is, how scared would you be? And what would you say? To be honest, would we fumble through our Bible and try to just, or would we try to recite John 3.16? And what would we say? Would you share your testimony? Would you tell them about the goodness of Jesus and how he's brought peace to your life and joy to your life? Would your speech be about the impact of the gospel as it relates to culture across the world? Or would it be the real gospel? Because the heartbreaking thing is your testimony is not the same as sharing or articulating the full gospel. It is an incredibly good thing to the point that we teach a class here called Share Your Story. I, in the same way that we believe in meeting the needs of people, we also believe in sharing your testimony. We also believe fully that Jesus brings goodness and peace and joy into your life and yet when we communicate to someone that the gospel is that you will have peace now they might fall more in love with what the benefits of the gospel are than the gospel itself we might be creating on accident Christian gold diggers who want the benefits of a relationship with Jesus without the relationship. Jesus absolutely, from his birth to now, has shaped the world, has, has shifted culture in a massive way, and yet that itself is not the gospel. And so what is the gospel? Well, if you pay close attention, and, and again, I'm not taking for granted that a lot of people in this room already know the gospel. I'm not trying to stand up here and say, you guys have missions wrong. You guys have the gospel wrong, but some of us might. And so if you pay close attention today, you'll not only know how to participate in the work of the gospel, but how to articulate the gospel to others. So how do we articulate the gospel? We need to remember four words. God, man, Christ, and response. God, man, Christ, and response, and I'll explain those. God, the righteous creator. In sharing the gospel, it begins with the righteousness and holiness of God. Psalm 11.7 says, for the Lord is righteous, he loves righteous deeds, the upright shall behold his face. 1 John 3.7 says, little children, let no one deceive you, whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. God is perfect and worthy of worship. That's where the gospel begins. The next thing, man. So God, man, Christ response. Man, man, the sinner. All people, though initially created good in the Garden of Eden, 
have become sinful by nature. Romans 3 says it this way, there is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is what creates a gap between the holy God and man. Apart from Christ, there there is a gap between God and man that we cannot build a a tower high enough to bridge. We we cannot ourselves, through our own good works, or however many times that we help someone cross the street or give to the poor, nothing we do can create righteousness in us. We are sinful and separated from God. And, And yet we have unbelievers all across the country who use the phrase, I'm praying for you. And the reason is because we don't realize that the bridge is out between us and God. Ephesians 2, verse 1, says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. I've heard it said the gospel is not to make good people out of bad people. It's to make alive people out of dead people. God, man, Christ. So if, if you heard it, we've, we've done the bad news. The bad news is the bridge is out, and nothing you do can help you make your way to God. But listen to this. Christ, the Savior. Jesus is fully God, fully man, lived a perfect and sinless life, and when he was on the cross, took the wrath of God for all of our sins, for the sins of All who would know and trust him, Jesus died on the cross, but he didn't stay dead. It's not a story like every other crucifixion, because three days later, after bearing the sins for us, he rose from the dead in order that he could give his people eternal life. Salvation is made possible by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. He doesn't deliver us from a lack of purpose. He doesn't deliver us from our temporal consequences for our sins. But instead he delivers us from sin's penalty and sin's power. Romans 5.1 says it this way. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. God, man, Christ response. My response in Faith. God calls everyone everywhere to repent and trust in him in order to be saved. This is what it says in Romans chapter 10, starting with verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. I love that verse. In other words, when we repent of our sins in place our faith in Jesus, when we put the full weight of our life in the hands of Jesus, we turn away from our sins and we follow him, we can be saved. And that means that we're justified with God, which means we have a right legal standing with God. In other words, because of Christ's work, the bridge is no longer out for anyone who repents and believes. That's the gospel message. God, the righteous creator, man, the sinner, Christ, the savior, in my response in faith. That's how we articulate the gospel. I want to close with this. We've titled this church, or this church, I think you know the name of this church. 
titled this sermon, Rearranging the Deck Chairs. I want to tell you why. On April 10th, 1912, you might have heard of this uh, little ship called the Titanic, which set sail from Southampton, England, to New York City. And one of the jobs on the Titanic, and this is true, was that two people were responsible for 256 deck chairs on the Titanic. And, and their job was to make sure that as the ship moved throughout the day and day after day, that the chairs were facing the sun. So there was this highly sought-after job called deck chair rearranger. Well, as the journey went along, and on the morning of April 14th, no idea what would transpire just after midnight of that evening, one of the deckhands wrote the following in his journal, 10 a.m., and I am rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. It seems such a pointless task, and I know I am only going to have to rearrange them later again today. But it's a job, and Pat and I are thankful for that. Pat's a great bloke, and a very good deck chair rearranger. I think he has a great future ahead of him. Well, later that night, and in the early hours of April 15th, we know what happened. Titanic strikes an iceberg and begins to list before going under completely. And one of the fascinating things, we, we've heard the story of the, the band, the orchestra, playing as the ship goes down. But another fascinating thing that passengers observed was the deckhands, the deckhands who were rearranging the chairs even as the ship began to tilt. And thus the idiom, rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic, was born. This fascinating but pointless thing that we do. That's what it describes. And I want, I want to ask you, when we stand before Christ on that day, will we look at our lives as if we were rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic? Making a world that is passing away a little bit better, and again, not a bad thing, but not a God thing. Or will we, armed with the Spirit of God and the Word of God and the good news of Jesus Christ, step forward into a lost and dying world and preach the gospel? Because apart from the gospel, nothing is mission and nothing will last. Will you pray with me? Lord, I pray today. that we would understand not just the points of this sermon, but God, that we would really take to heart the point of the sermon. Which is, God, if we don't know you, then the gap is out. The, the, the bridge is out between you and us. And God, in our own sin, nothing we do, even if our righteousness seemingly outweighs our sin, a million pounds to one, which I know it doesn't. Even if the ratio is great, God, your word says that our sin separates us from you. 
And in our own works, we can never be made righteous. God, we know you are holy. We know that we are sinners. And God, today, I am so grateful that you did what we could not do. word says in Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For you have done what we could not do. By sending your son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, you can forgive us for our sin. If we repent and trust in you, God, through all the points which matter in this sermon, don't let us miss the main point that we must know Jesus or every good deed is rearranging that church. And God, for the believers in this room, those who have already trusted you, placed their faith in you, God, I pray that we would win others to you. We would build them up through training them in righteousness. And we would connect them to the church. God, that's the work of the gospel. The good news inspires us to And we're thankful. God, as we prepare to leave this place, remind us through your word and through the verse that we say every week that we are walking out of this place and into the mission field. It's not just to make the mission field a little less dark. God, it's to bring the light of the gospel, which is the only thing that can change us. God, we love you. Love in a mighty way as we dismiss.